All right, let's talk about T.S. Eliot. Uh, Eliot was born in America, but he became a British citizen, and he usually studied both in the surveys of British and American literature, which is okay because he is really one of the major figures of modernism. And the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock is his first major uh, published poem. Now, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock is a kind of dramatic monologue. We saw those with Robert Browning, but it's quite different in a lot of ways. It's a kind of a stream of consciousness uh, in a dramatic monologue. Uh, We start with the title, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Well, the name J. Alfred Prufrock does not sound very romantic, uh, and that's deliberate. It's it's supposed to be a, a kind of a comical name. And that's already telling us something about, you know, what this character is like. Then we get a uh, a short epigram at the beginning of the poem. T.S. Eliot loved epigrams. Uh, and this one is a quotation from Dante's Inferno. This is the poet Dante was going through the various levels of hell. And here's what one of the, uh, the sinners in hell told him. It translates to, if I thought that my reply would be to one who would ever return to the world, this flame would stay with, uh, without further movement. But since none has ever returned alive from this depth, if what I hear is true, I answer you without fear of infamy. Now, in the context of the Inferno, that's very ironic because this sinner is saying, I'm going to tell you all about what I did because, well, you're in hell too, so you can't ever tell anyone else. But it turns out that Dante is the one person who is going through hell and will return to write all about it. And it also sets up that this is a, the, the speaker is in a kind of hell. And he doesn't. what he's saying is, in a way, not going to be repeated by anyone. Uh, we're overhearing what he says, uh, but we're listening to him almost as confession of, of like this sinner in hell. So it begins. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient, etherized upon a table. All right, so just in the opening lines here, uh, it's not clear who the you and I is at first, and it seems like it's there's not another person. He's not talking to another person. This is all internal. He's almost talking to himself. Uh, It's evening. And the image he uses for evening is like a patient etherized upon a table, knocked out. Um, That's a a strange image, but an oddly appropriate one for the nighttime, like a patient. But being etherized, it's not just going to natural sleep, but some kind of drug has put him to sleep. And that is very telling for this, for J. Alfred Prufrock's psychological state. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells, streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. So now this journey, he's kind of walking through the streets, but again, he uses the metaphor. The, the, The way he goes is like a tedious argument of insidious intent. 
So he, it's almost like a maze that he's going through, this tedious, or, and a tedious argument, an argument that goes around and around, as we'll see his interior arguments do, and it's leading to an overwhelming question, and then we get that ellipsis, oh, do not ask, what is it? Let us go and make our visit. Now, if you'll notice just the form of this poem, uh, there's a lot of rhymed couplets here, but often the rhymed couplets aren't of the same length, like, let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats. Uh, those lines rhyme, but they don't have the same uh, metrical pattern. They're not the same length. And uh, Eliot does that throughout the poem. It, it's a kind of a almost uh, form to it, but always not quite. Uh, so things are, it, it, the, the lines are, don't quite fall into a metrical pattern. They're not quite free verse. The rhymes keep f making you feel like it, it's, a, you know, it's a poem, but then not all the lines rhyme. And, and some, so it, it's almost like there's a pattern trying to emerge, but it can't quite. And Eliot loved that kind of fragmentary form. He would use that a lot in his poetry. So he's got this overwhelming question. And we know this is a love song, so we imagine that it's a romantic question. And then we get this little couplet. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. So here's the, the, the room that he's in, and the women just kind of are very at ease here and talking about, you know, uh, Michelangelo, great Western artist. Um, but he seems to be excluded. He's, he's the man, uh, J. Alfred, is not talking about that, maybe. Then we get another series of images of the night. The yellow fog that rubs its back upon the window panes. So now the yellow fog is like an animal, like a cat, uh, rubbing its back on the window panes. The yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle on the window panes. Fog, smoke, back, muzzle. Um, it, it's all, those images kind of fit together. Licked its tongue into the corners of the evening, lingered upon the pools that stand in drains, let fall upon its back the soot that falls from chimneys, slipped by the terrace, made a sudden leap, and seeing that it was a soft October night, curled once around about the house and fell asleep. So that's a wonderful, you know, just, just you know, you could just take that poem, that, uh, that stanza and, uh, or verse paragraph, and, and that could be a poem in itself. Uh, but it fits in here, first of all, images of fog and smoke. Um, very much, you know, we saw that kind of imagery used in Heart of Darkness uh, for a world that is foggy and smoky and unclear and confusing to people. Uh, and also in going to sleep, it does all this, it rubs, it's, there's a kind of a sensualness to it, all of its, these physical actions, licking and rubbing and muzzling, uh, and then just gently falling to sleep. Um, so another image of sleep, like the patient etherized upon a table, he says, and indeed there will be time for the yellow smoke that slides along the street, rubbing its back upon the window panes. There will be time, there will be time to prepare a face, to meet the faces that you meet. So we, we've, we've said he's, he's going for this overwhelming question, and now he's saying, well, there'll be plenty of time. There are a lot of repetitions. You know, he, he repeats that image of the, uh, the yellow smoke uh, sliding along the streets, rubbing its back. There will be time, there will be time. 
Um, and it's time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. So this idea, he has to put on put on a good face on it, you know. He can't just meet people the way he is. He has to perform a certain role. There will be time to murder and create. Now, now this becomes very dramatic, you know, for every, from the one end of the spectrum to another, from murder to creation, and time for all the works and days of hands that lift and drop a question on your plate. All right, now we had that overwhelming question here. Now the, 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 uh, this, this great, enormous thing, it drops a question here on your plate. It's on your plate. You've got to deal with it. Time for you and time for me and time yet for a hundred indecisions and for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of toast and tea. So we're getting a sense of th this overwhelming question is overwhelming to him. You know, he's he's thinking all the hand, the, the you know uh, the, the question is there, and he has a hundred indecisions. He's indecisive. He he has he has a vision of it, but then he revises that all of that before they you know have a little toast and tea in the evening, and then again a repetition in the women in the room. The women come and go, talking of Michelangelo, and indeed there will be time. That this is this kind of circular thoughts of this character. He says, you know, there's time, there's time. I don't have to ask it right now. There's time, there's time. He says, time to wonder, do I dare? And do I dare? Again, this repetition. He's caught up. He can't get out of this loop. Um, time to turn back and descend the stair with a bald spot in the middle of my hair. They will say, how his hair is growing thin. So now we get the kind of self-consciousness of this character. Uh, he, he's he's, go, he's going up the stairs. Then, no, it's time. Oh, I don't dare do that. Uh, I'll, I'll go back. And he's self-conscious about the bald spot and thinks, oh, they'll all think my hair is getting thin. My morning coat, my collar mounting firmly to the chin, my necktie rich and modest, but asserted by a simple pin. They will say, but how his arms and legs are thin. Uh, so he's all dressed up, you know, he's got everything else, he has his, tie, his little tie pin there, everything is neat and, and ordered, but he's, he's thinking about how people are judging him. They'll just say that his arms and legs look thin. Do I dare disturb the universe? So that's how important this is, is to disturb the universe. Uh, well, the overwhelming question, again, he has is a romantic one. Is it, what's he going to say? He's going to say to a woman, I love you. Um, said, so do I dare disturb the universe? Do I do that? In a minute, there is time for decisions and revisions, which a minute will reverse. There again, that repetition of visions, revisions, decisions and revisions. Um, and he says, yeah, you can have one, but then you can reverse it. He's indecisive. He goes back and forth. He says, for I have known them all already, known them all have known the evenings, mornings, afternoons. I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. So it's this kind of weariness. Oh, I've, I know how this, this is the way it goes. I've seen this before. I've known it all. It happens, it's happening again. And that wonderful image, I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. Well, a coffee spoon is a very tiny little amount uh, this is not a big, you know, a big teaspoon. Uh, this is a little bitty coffee spoon. And that's how he's measuring out of his life, one little bitty measly bit at a time. 
I know the voices dying with a dying fall beneath the music from a farther room, so how should I presume? So it's like he's hearing the music in the next room. Uh, this is interestingly very much like the uh, the image in, in James Joyce's The Dead. I remember Greta listening to the, the song in the other room. He can hear that and with a, with a dying fall. Now that's a, an allusion to Shakespeare's play The Tempest. Uh, at the beginning of that play, the the, the lovesick uh, Count Orsino says, uh, you know, play, he's having them play music, and he says, oh, that strain again, it had a dying fall. It was, it was beautiful music. So here's that music. But here in this context, in J. Alfred Prufrock, uh, the sense of uh, voices dying with a dying fall, the voices are dying out, uh, he's losing it, he's, he's dying. He says, I have known the eyes already, known them all, the eyes that fix you in a formulated phrase. And when I am formulated, sprawling on a pin, when I am pinned and wriggling on the wall, then how should I begin to spit out all the butt-ins of my days and ways, and how should I presume? So again, this sense of him being judged, the eyes that are looking at him, a formulated phrase is fixing him. And notice the image of the pin. Before, he had his tie with a simple pen looking very smart and, and put together. Now he's like an insect who's been, you know, a butterfly in a collection, sprawling on a pen, pinned to the wall. Um, and so then how should I presume? Again, I, it would be presumptuous of me uh, to, to, to actually make my emotions known. He says, I have known the arms already, known them all arms that are braceleted and white and bare, but in the lamplight, downed with light brown hair. Again, this is a wonderful, uh, very detailed, specific image here. He's talking about the the arms of the the ladies, right? Braceleted, white, and bare. And that's a beautiful kind of romantic image, but he immediately follows that with, in the lamplight, downed with light brown hair. Well, yeah, w- women do have you know a light dusting of hair on their arms, but it, it's like that kind of freaks him out. Ooh, they've got hair; they're not perfect. Um, you know, this is he, he's obsessing about these things. Is it perfume from a dress that makes me so digress? Arms that lie along a table or wrap about a shawl, and how should I then presume? And how should I begin? So. He's trapped. This is not going to be a wonderful romantic declaration. This is, how can I ever get to the point where I make the romantic declaration? Um, In the next little section. Shall I say, I have gone at dusk through narrow streets and watched the smoke that rises from the pipes of lonely men in shirt sleeves leaning out of windows? Of course, that's how the poem started. Again, we get the sense of repetition, uh, him walking through the streets, the, the smoke, the yellow smoke coming on. Um, he's seen that. Uh, you know, I, well, I could say that. Well, he's already said that. He says, I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas. Um, so again, these amazing images that Eliot gets here, uh, like a pair of claws, like a crab or something, scuttling along the floors of silent seas, uh, far away from any kind of human contact. And uh, again, the, the sense of, of alienness, of how 
uh, uh, isolated he is from the, the, the social human world around him. And the afternoon, the evening, sleeps so peacefully. Here we get that image of sleep again. Smoothed by long fingers, asleep, tired, or it malingers, stretched on the floor here beside you and me. Uh, so that image of stroked by the, the, the fingers is, again, it's like the, the pet imagery, like a cat. Uh, it sleeps peacefully. We put this, why, you know, let sleeping dogs lie is kind of the image here. Oh, it, you know, the image is, the, the night is so peaceful. Why would I disturb it by, you know, telling a woman how I feel about her? He said, should I after tea and cakes and ices, have the strength to force the moment to its crisis. But though I have wept and fasted, wept and prayed, though I have seen my head, grown slightly bald, brought in upon a platter, I am no prophet, and here's no great matter. I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker, and I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker, and in short... I was afraid. So here, again, this kind of internal dramatic monologue, he's talking about his feelings here and the, the words he uses, you know, that forced the moment to its crisis, uh, this moment where he actually, uh, you know, his, his heart's beating and he's actually going to have to say to this woman how he feels about her. No, no, I don't want to. He backs away from that. Um, and the imagery, wept and fasted, wept and prayed. Again, it sounds like a prophet out of the Old Testament. And his head brought in upon a platter. Of course, his head grown slightly bald. There's that self-consciousness. And that image of the head brought in on a platter is like John the Baptist, uh, where Salome uh, danced for the king, and he, she was so wonderful that he would give her anything she asked, and she asked for the head of John the Baptist. Uh, well, that's really resonant here. It's like this: if this woman turns me down, it would be like... I was John the Baptist, and my head cut off, and there on a platter. Uh, remember, it said before that it would drop the it would drop a question on my plate, on your plate. Um, so here's his head upon a platter. Uh, but he realizes that that's all. All of those images are over exaggerating it. it. Says I'm no prophet, and here's no great matter. Um, but that doesn't help either, because there he sees the eternal footman, uh, death. Um, hold my coat and snicker. There again, he's constantly worried about how people are judging him. Um, and, says, and would it have been worth it after all? Now notice the change in, in verb tense here. Would it have been? So the moment has already passed. And now he's looking back and saying, well, no, I didn't disturb the universe. I didn't do anything. But, you know, it wouldn't really have been worth it. He's kind of talking himself into that. I mean, one thing, the uh, this kind of, of stream of consciousness poetry can be very hard to unpack. I'm, I, that's why I'm going through it here kind of almost line by line uh, to kind of show you how it's working. But one thing that I think makes this more accessible is that this is an emotion that I think a lot of people have had, that kind of emotional insecurity uh, about telling somebody you care about that you care about them. Uh, and, and deciding, oh, no, I'm not going to do that, backing away from it. He says, would it have been worth it after all, after the cups and the marmalade, the tea, among the porcelain, among uh, among small some 
talk of you and me, would it have been worth while to have bitten off the matter with a smile, to have squeezed the universe into a ball, to roll it toward some overwhelming question, to say, I am Lazarus, come from the dead, come back to tell you all, I shall tell you all, if one sitting, uh, setting a pillow by her head should say, that is not what I, what I meant at all, that is not it at all. So here he says, again, some of the images he uses here, it says, would it have been worth it to have squeezed the universe into a ball? Now that's a, a, another illusion. T.S. Eliot loved literary illusions. He was about as well-read as any writer ever has been, and he would uh, allude to all kinds of different works and poems. This one is from a famous Carpe Diem poem, um, the, from uh, Andrew Marvell's To His Coy Mistress. And at the end of it, he says, when he says the seize the day part of the poem, he says, let us roll all our strength and all our sweetness into one ball and tear our pleasures with rough strife through the, the iron gates of life. So that's about as far away emotionally as you can get from J. Alfred Brufrock. Um, but he sees that, you know, squeeze the universe into a ball to be like uh, the, those Carpe Diem poets. Um, and you know, again, saying, "I am Lazarus, come from the dead." Uh, so it would it would be like a resurrection to have, uh, you know, he would be uh, like he was alive again to be able to say this. But it wouldn't have been worth it if the reaction was, "No, that's not what I meant at all. That is not it at all. No, you you missed the point entirely. You don't get it." Um, and, and that would that would be crushing. He couldn't he wouldn't bear that. And would it have been worth worth it after all? Would it have been worthwhile after the sunsets and the dooryards and the sprinkled streets, after the novels, after the teacups, after the skirts that uh, trail along the floor, and this and so much more? It is impossible to say just what I mean. Uh, that's in some ways the key to the whole poem. Um, and if you remember, that is a, a continue continuous theme in Heart of Darkness, where Marlowe is saying that he can't really, you weren't there, so you can't really understand what it's like. And that's something about what the the speaker is saying here. I can't tell you what I mean. I don't have the words for it. I can't communicate. I'm trapped inside my own head, and I can't get out my meanings to the outside world. He says, but as if a magic lantern through the nerves in patterns on a screen, would it have been worthwhile if one set, setting a pillow or throwing off a shawl and, and turning toward the window should say, that is not it at all. That is not what I meant at all. So just, just the, the thought that there might be that miscommunication uh, ruins it for him. He, he can't bear that, that, uh, that kind of a very casual rejection, not not mean spirited or everything, but oh no, you've really kind of missed the point. Um, you know, that, that's I don't feel about you that way at all. Um, so, and because he can't bear that, he never brings the moment to that crisis. And then we begin the last section of the poem. No, I am not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be. Now, Hamlet is a very interesting choice here. Hamlet is famously indecisive. 
Uh, he, he can't uh, decide whether to murder his father, to, uh, his uh, uncle or not uh, at the uh, request of his ghostly father. Um, and indecision is a hallmark of Hamlet's character. And he says, but I'm not like that. Like he said, I'm no prophet and here's no great matter. Well, I'm not Hamlet either. I'm, I'm small and inadequate. He says, instead, he is an attendant lord, one that will do to swell a progress, start a scene or two, advise the prince, no doubt an easy tool, deferential, glad to be of use, politic, cautious, and meticulous. Uh, so now he's kind of characterizing himself. I, I'm not the star of, of the show. I, I'm the, the kind of the little bit player here off on the side. Um, politic, cautious, and meticulous. Uh, that really sums up uh, J. Alfred Prufrock. Notice that I think it also very much sums up Gabriel Conway uh, from The Dead, uh, politic, cautious, and meticulous, uh, so caught up in their own self-consciousness that they can't really connect in a passionate way with the world. It's full of high sentence, but a bit obtuse, at times indeed almost ridiculous, at times almost the fool. So we moved from Prince Hamlet to the fool. Now, there are a lot of fools in uh, Shakespeare's plays as well, uh, but here he's seeing himself, he's in that role. He's the comic relief. He's the foolish one. Uh, he's gotten as far away from the, the noble, tragic hero, Prince Hamlet, as you can get. He says, I grow old. I grow old. I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. So again, this kind of uh, his hair is getting thin, his, his uh, all this, and he's, he's getting old. And why is he wearing the bottoms of his trousers rolled? Well, he's shrinking. He's literally shrinking, uh, just as his self-esteem is shrinking. Uh, and it's actually true: as you get older, you do shrink. Um, and so he has to kind of roll up his trousers because he's he doesn't have the stature he once did. Shall I part my hair behind? Here's that, again, that self-consciousness. Oh, I've got that little bald spot. Maybe if I did a comb over, no one would notice. Um, do I dare to eat a peach? So that, that for him, eating a peach would be an act of daring. That's how kind of constricted his life has become. I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. I have heard the mermaids singing each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me. Um, so here, the, the final image that we come with this poem is the mermaids. And notice how that fits in with the, the images of women in the poem. Uh, mermaids, as in singing, were uh, very often the idea was they would lure men with their song onto the rocks and that would destroy them. Uh, and he has heard the mermaids singing to each other, but he doesn't think they're going to sing to him. This kind of goes back to that image in the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. But they're not talking to him about that. He's left out. He's on the outside. Uh, he can hear how beautiful that mermaid music is, but it's not for him. I have seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves blown back when the wind blows the water white and black. So again, this beautiful image of the, the water, the sea, the waves, 
uh, and the, the mermaids, like with the the hair, is like the, the the white foam of the waves, water white and black. We have lingered in the chambers of the sea, by sea girls wreathed with seaweed red and brown, till human voices wake us, and we drown. Now, this is kind of a, a very despairing image at the end, the kind of drowning. He's in the sea. He's in this fantasy. The sea girls, the mermaids, wreathed with seaweed. But when you wake up from that dream, you're drowning. Uh, it, it's not a, a, a hospitable environment for you. Uh, now, you can also, I think, read that as almost a waking up. If he could ever break this spell... Uh, maybe he could get out of it. Uh, but it also, it seems to me, the tone is much more melancholy. Uh, now, I've spent quite a bit of time going through this poem because I want to give you a sense of how Eliot's poetry works. It's very fragmentary. Uh, he's not giving a clear sequential narrative here. You get just little flashes of images and feelings and tone, and you kind of build them up to understand the whole picture. Uh, modernist literature, the kind of modernist literature that Eliot and James Joyce and others were writing, uh, uh, Virginia Woolf as well, um, is self-consciously difficult. Uh, it's supposed to be challenging. It's not supposed to be something that you read and get the first time. They didn't want you to read and get it the first time. They wanted you to work with it and engage with it and uh, you know see things in a new way. Uh, also notice that it's very deeply elusive. That is, it has allusions to other works of literature. We've got you know Hamlet and, and the Bible. Uh, we've got uh, uh, Carpe Diem poems. Uh, all of these kinds of references that uh, expand the range of the poem. So it's very rooted in a literary tradition. Even though it's very modern and innovative, it feels very much a part of the tradition of Western literature. But one thing that makes it very modern, very 20th century, is the the, the themes and subject matter that it's looking at. Uh, this is a a very a kind of love song that you would never have heard in the the Renaissance or the Romantic period, and much of modernist literature, certainly much of T. S. Eliot's writing, is about the feeling of alienation in the modern world. Uh, somebody like J. Alfred Prufrock, who is is cut off from his own feelings even, and is kind of trapped in this kind of intellectual place where he can't uh, he can't connect. And we see a similar thing in The Hollow Men. Uh, again, he starts with some epigrams. Mr. Mr. Kurtz, he dead. Now, I hope you remember where that comes from. Uh, so he's talking about, if you remember, there's a, a line in The uh, Heart of Darkness where Marlowe says that the reason that the, the this darkness echoed in Kurtz is because he was hollow. And, that, of course, this is The Hollow Men. Then the second line is another epigram, The Penny for the Old Guy. This is from the celebration of Guy Fawkes Day on November 5th, uh, who was part of the gunpowder plot. And on Guy Fawkes Day, they have these kind of scarecrow effigies of Guy Fawkes that they uh, burn. Uh, so those are the kind of images that he starts with. He says, we are the hollow men. We are the stuffed men, leaning together, headpieces filled with straw. Alas, 
Uh, now, think about the, but they're both hollow and stuffed, which seems like they should be opposites, but actually fits together. If They're kind of, they're like scarecrows. They're stuffed with nothing. They're, they're, hollow, they're both hollow and full, but full in a, a, an empty way. Um, our dried, uh, alas, our dried voices, when we whisper together, are quiet and meaningless as wind in dry grass or rat's feet over broken glass in our dry cellar. Um, so again, those images, wind in the dry grass, rat's feet over broken glass. Um, that's uh, Eliot was, I think, brilliant at those kind of very powerful images that encapsulate an idea or a feeling. Um, and he says, uh, shape without form, shade without color, paralyzed force, gesture without motion. Now, those are all paradoxical uh, images, but that's what it feels like here. Uh, this is a more abstract kind of version of jail for proof rock. And notice it's we are the stuffed man, not I am a stuffed man. Uh, this is a whole group of people that don't even have individual identities. This is just what they're like. And for Eliot, this is what modern man is like, a hollow stuffed man uh, who who's, had, is paralyzed in the same way that proof rock is. Um, and it says, uh, those who have crossed with direct eyes to death's other kingdom. So these are like dead men. They're, they're living in the world, but they're, they're almost like the living dead. The people who have actually died in death's other kingdom, who have gone to heaven or hell, um, they only remember us, if they remember us at all, not as lost, violent souls that would have been you know, cast into hell, but only as the hollow men, the stuffed men. We're in a kind of limbo. Uh, we, we don't belong in, in any kind of grand thing. Again, like Prufrock's idea, I'm, I'm no prophet. Here's no great matter. Uh, we're, we're, our lives are meaningless. We don't amount to anything. Um, and he talks uh, you know, about the eyes I dare not meet in dreams, in death's dream kingdom. These do not appear. Um, is as we, you don't see, have those visions, those eyes that you might see. Um, it says, uh, let me be no nearer in death's dream kingdom. Let me also wear such deliberate disguises, rat's coat, crow skin, crossed staves in a field, behaving as the wind behaves. Uh, so again, this is a scarecrow image, those crossed sticks, uh, a coat in a field, uh, you're just a, a stuffed head scarecrow. There's nothing substantial about you. Um, he says, this is the dead land. This is the cactus land. Um, this is, again, the only thing living here is the, the prickly cactus, you know, stone images. Um, and he says that lips that would kiss form prayers to broken stone. So here again is that image, like in Prufrock, of the we should be there should be kisses, there should be passion. Instead, we're just saying prayers to broken stone. Nothing real. It's and the stones themselves are broken. Um, it's kind of this this meaningless ritual that they're going through. Um, it says uh, the eyes are not here. There are no eyes here in this valley of dying stars, in this hollow valley, this broken jaw of our lost kingdoms. Um, 
And again, the, the way he uses these repetitions, he talks about the, the dying stars, hollow, broken um, eyes. All of those images come up and they have a greater resonance as you go through the poem. Uh, he keeps talking about death's dream kingdom, death's other kingdom. Uh, all of that uh, comes here. And even these short kind of clipped fragmentary lines uh, give the sense of uh, of the kind of incomplete fragmentary lives that the these hollow stuffed men are leading. And look at the last section of the poem. It's divided into five little sections. He begins... Here we go round the prickly pear, prickly pear, prickly pear. Here we go round the prickly pear at five o'clock in the morning. Now, he's another kind of illusion, but here it's just a kind of a simple children's nursery rhyme, right? Uh, instead of the mulberry bush, it's the prickly pear. Again, this is the cactus land. So he takes that and twists it and fits it into the image of the poem, um, but it's also the idea of going around meaninglessly in a circle, right? Here we go round, here we go round, here we go round. Uh, and also kind of a child's game. There's no substance to it. And then he goes on. Between the idea and the reality, between the motion and the act, falls the shadow. So here's where they get caught up, between an idea and its reality, between the motion and the act. Think about how that relates to uh, uh, J. Alfred Prufrock, uh, between his idea and reality, between the motion and the act. There's a shadow land, this, this dead land that they're in. And then we get the, for thine is the kingdom. That's a fragment of the Lord's Prayer. Between the conception and the creation, you think of an idea before you create it, between the emotion and and the response falls to shadow. So they have these emotions, but they can't respond. Life is very long. Um, another kind of little fragmentary idea there. Between the desire and the spasm. So here, a very, very sexual image, right? Uh, between your, your, your desire is roused, but before the, the actual physical consummation, the spasm happens. Between the potency and the existence between the essence and the descent falls the shadow. For thine is the kingdom. And then this next wonderful little stanza. For thine is, life is, for thine is the... Now why does he do those little fragmentary lines? Uh, we, we know what the completion should be, but the completions don't happen. Again, this is like a broken record. They, they're just repeating, uh, again, prayers to broken stone, you know, little, little fragments. For thine is, life is, for thine is the... And we end with another kind of almost nursery rhyme sounding ending. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. Uh, that's a very famous line. Um... And so here, they're ending, again, there's nothing grand or tragic or beautiful about this. It's just kind of this gray, dull, shadow existence, hollow men, stuffed men. They don't end with a bang, but with a whimper. Um, so that is the, you know, kind of the, <laughs> the, the picture that Eliot has of modern life, of how alienated it is, of how petty it is. Uh, and how cut off it is from kind of a rich, lived experience. Now, we're going to see a lot of these same themes in the poem we're going to talk about next time, which is The Wasteland. 
which is a it's a much longer poem, uh, and it's one of the central works of literary modernism. And I can assure you that when you read through the wasteland, you're not going to understand what's going on. Uh, that's deliberate. Uh, it's not supposed to be a poem that is transparent to you. Uh, one thing that will help is to remember that it's a series of dramatic monologues, that there are a number of different speakers and different points of view. It's not you know, one poetic voice saying the whole thing. And if you you know you can pick out the kind of different both men and women, uh, ancient and modern, uh, all of these kind of fragmentary things are, are mixed together, and that's part of Eliot's point. Another thing to help is to remember the title, "The Wasteland." Uh, the Wasteland is from Arthurian literature. Uh, it's connected with the uh, legends of the Holy Grail. The idea was that the the Fisher King, who was wounded in the loins. Uh, and was uh, therefore impotent, uh, was presiding over the land, and because he had been wounded and was impotent, his country had become a wasteland. It was kind of barren, desert. And only when the, when, when uh, in most legends, when Percival came and found the Holy Grail and was able to restore the kingdom, did it come to life. Well, Eliot sees modern culture as a wasteland, and so these images of death, of of drought, of uh, you know lack of of rain. Uh, notice also that there are kind of the images of relationships between men and women. How are those figured? What are how do men and women relate to each other in uh, in the wasteland? Uh, one a final piece of advice I would give you in how to read the wasteland, at least if this is your first time is first of all, just try to read through it without worrying too much about the footnotes. There are a lot of footnotes on the wasteland. In fact, a lot of them were written by T.S. Eliot. He had very extensive footnotes that he wrote to the poem, uh, and they don't include all of them in the Norton Anthology, and we're probably better off for that. Um, but try to get the, the gist and the feel of it, and then go back and read it and use the footnotes to help kind of orient you on what's going on. All right. Well, I thank you for your attention, and you will need all of your attention as we tackle T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland next time.